This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 591 Can a comic book collector of over 30 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. Nothing matters in Flashpoint, heroes for you no more, it's a hot time in Gorilla City, the dead elephant in the room, and remembering when it was doomsday for the comic industry. This is how I got my wife to read comics for Sunday, May 8th, 2022. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just a reminder, you can go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get our feed, other SF podcasts and blogs, subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher, and maybe find somewhere to leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn, follow us on Twitter at sfppn, check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork, or call us at 614 321 737 that's 614-321-9SFP. Flashpoint Beyond, number one of six, by Johns, Adams, Sheridan, Zermenico, and Fajardo Jr. After a number zero special to set the table, here's a miniseries set in the supposedly destroyed universe where everything went wrong after Barry saved his mom. We begin at the huge dinner table of Wayne Manor, where Thomas quietly eats with the now-orphaned son of Harvey Dent. Oswald comes in, telling us that with Dent's death, the murder charges against Thomas have been dropped, which makes issue zero a red herring. Thomas says he's got business out of town, telling Oswald to take care of the kid. He asks to learn how to shoot a gun, and Oswald is happy to oblige. Thomas, now dressed for action in the Batcave, grabs Joe Chill's gun under glass. He has to find out why all of this has happened, and has now eliminated Thawne as a suspect. So, it's off to see and kill Aquaman. In the UK, under the King of the Sea's control, we see Aqua troops keeping watch over a flooded London. Under a pier, tied to a post by her lasso, Diana is about to die in high tide. So... We know Diana can't break the lasso, but what about the wooden post? She doesn't lose her strength unless her bracelets are chained by a man. Just snap the pole and leave. There's guards there taunting her, one of whom wants to kill her himself before she drowns. Thomas comes out of the water and blows the heads off the guards. He then gives Diana an offer. He'll get her out if he can borrow the lasso. He doesn't care what she does after that because his plan is to make this reality go away. Thomas sneaks up on Aquaman in his throne and lassos him around the neck. Did Aquaman send the hitman out to kill Thomas? No, and we know he's telling the truth. He also doesn't know who did it. There's a fight and Aquaman wins. He's about to touch his trident to the ocean orb, which will complete the flooding of the UK. But where's the trident? Oh, there it is, skewered through his back by Diana. The Amazons are now free to take over the planet. But Thomas says it doesn't matter. Nothing matters here. Back to Wayne Manor, where Oswald is doing so-so with the boy on weapons training. Thomas is back, and Oswald tells him the casino was destroyed while he was gone. Meanwhile, on Earth Zero, Barry comes by the Batcave. He's tracking Thawne. Bruce notes that he installed an anti-speedster system after the last battle with Thawne, and it didn't go off. 
Now, Barry is allowed via that system. Barry says there's something disrupting time and is working with Jay Garrick. He also mentions the Justice Society. Just give us a JSA title already. After Barry leaves, Corky of the Time Master says that the Speedsters will figure out what Bruce is doing. It's not too late to undo this. Yes, it is. Throughout the issue, we see and hear news reports. Waller wants to draft every metahuman against the Atlanteans and presumably the Amazons. Oliver Queen is killed by Freedom Beast. The Senate is being held hostage by the human bomb. Clocks in Keystone City are now all running 11 minutes slow. The Superman has been spotted. There's blizzards throughout the West Coast. And the FDA will approve Miraclo for public use, which sounds like a really bad idea. Just seems like Johns also agrees this world will not last long. One Star Squadron number 6 of 6 by Russell Lieber and Stewart. The final issue of what started as a wacky commentary on the gig economy provides a wistful conclusion, very different for Mark Russell. Over a year later, Red is going through the motions of life. He goes to the Dollar Major to pick up chili, then leaves flowers on the grave of Jose Delgado. There's a flashback to Red leaving Chile for Delgado, then the funeral. Red helps a wind farm get back up to speed, doing more good than he ever did as a hero. He hears a TMI report that Minuteman is dead and goes down to the morgue to ID him. Red confirms it to them, but he knows it's not him. We check in on the other Heroes for You staff. G.I. Robot is teaching a class in vigilantism. Heckler is interviewing with Luther on his new gig economy app. Power Girl has coffee with Red and keeps apologizing for what she did to him. She realizes she can't play by this planet's rules and has to be a real hero. None of them have heard from Minuteman, but then Red gets a fan letter from him. Minuteman almost committed suicide, first by cutting his wrists, then by Miraclo overdose. The knife cuts the waterbed and Minuteman is saved. Who's flying the EMS chopper, taking him to Metropolis General? It's Teabag, the former drug dealer. He did say he wanted to fly helicopters. Minuteman then turned his life around, selling ice cream at a Montana stand. He Pine th- cones. It was called pine cones. <laughs> I liked that. Sorry. <laughs> he thanks Red for being a hero. Every good hero story is the story of people helping each other survive. The story of those who showed up for you, even when you weren't there for yourself. I don't know if forgiveness is possible for what I've done, but there's one thing I no longer doubt. Even though I lost all right to be one, I know there are still heroes left in the world. Minuteman included a Heroes for You Employee of the Year badge in the envelope. Whatever Mark Russell writes next, I will be there for it. Rogues, Book 2 from DC, Black Label by Williamson, Leo Max, Lopez, and Wordle. An agent notifies Director Chase of the DEO that Evan McCullough broke out of rehab and Len Snart is AOL from his job. When she asks him to contact Lisa Snart and is told she's AWOL too, damn it! We get a montage of the rogues off to Africa. Their cover is that they are a documentary crew. Lisa sees families there surrounded by guns, and Len tells her to forget it. They're there for the gold. Unfortunately, the boat they plan to take downriver to Gorilla City is beached. Trickster was in charge of getting the boat. The rogues are told by natives not to go up the river. People do and then never come back. 
Len asks Evan to use his mirror gun to help them, but he's still out of it from all the drugs and rehab. Most of the group is ready to give up before Magenta moves the boat into the river. During the cruise, Len and Lisa talk. Len was secretly taught by their mom to run a boat. Lisa's called out about being in a relationship with Bronze Tiger. There's lots of swearing and bickering among the group before Mick Rory heats up a dinner for them. Then it's a long hike throughout the desert before they reach Gorilla City, a bunch of apes in tree houses. Len trumpets about how he found it, but the rest are unimpressed. Evan, now somewhat lucid, is ready to go home. James laughs. It's a front for the real Gorilla City. He finds an access tunnel and they follow it. The real city is underground and is far more modern than expected. It's like a regular metropolis except with apes wearing clothes. Cut to Grodd meeting with his board of directors. They need to increase labor and productivity. Bring in outsiders? Force people to work harder? Well, the unions are already pushing back. Grodd calls out one of them who was undermining him. He does so by dropping a human head on the table. He pulls himself back. I almost went back to my old ways. Then he decides to make it a teaching moment by making the rest watch what Grodd's about to do to him. Unfortunately, Grodd's wife drops by with his small son. I told you to stay in the tower! It's a whole Godfather thing. Sam Simeon, who returned to the city, is less thrilled with the city. Homelessness, crime. A friend extols Grodd's work getting them to this point. Magenta and Len walk around. There's humans here, all apparently paying off debts in servitude. Evan is approached by a guerrilla drug dealer. James gets into a poker game at a bar and, of course, cheats. Bronze Tiger talks his way out of it. Lisa and Tiger find the bank of Gorilla City as well as a mysterious building built into a wall of the massive cave. There's debate on what to do next, and Len again talks them into moving forward. They'll break into the bank, and Evan will warp them out. The group turns to Lisa for confirmation, who thinks and then replies, Hmm, F. Grodd. In an aside, Len tells Lisa to run if this goes south. Len steps away, slaps himself to get rid of any doubts in his mind, and is then beat up by Sam Simeon. What the F are you doing here, Cold? You know this heist isn't going to go well. Okay, let's get to the elephant in the room. Justice League number 75 by Williamson, Sandoval, Tarragona, and Herms. If you weren't aware of this already, the acetate front cover screams, Death of the Justice League! Spoiler! It's as if Citizen Kane's first scene had Rosebud is the sled superimposed on it. Heroes are warped away. Black Adam from Kandok, Batman from Gotham, Diana from Themyscira, John Stewart from Oa, Hawk Girl from The Totality, Superman from War World, Zaytana from Central City, Aquaman from Atlantis, Martian Manhunter from Washington, conveniently leaving Naomi there, and Black Canary from Star City, with G.A. hitching a ride. They find themselves at the Hall of Heroes. Justice League Incarnate has brought them there. President Superman explains there is a grave danger, then brings them up to speed on the JLI miniseries. The upshot, the great darkness is here. Satana notes that her father died fighting it. Black Adam scoffs that they beat it before, but Diana knows that she was told that saving the multiverse would come with a cost. They're told the specter is dead, then the darkness attacks. Dr. Multiverse warps them to the front line, the dark multiverse. They find Pariah there, about to use the antimatter chamber to destroy all worlds so the true multiverse can be born. He's been given a dark army to fight them, each of which could give the League a run for their money. 
Aries, Dark Side, Doomsday, Eclipso, Neuron, Necron, and the Upside Down Man, along with a legion of wraiths. So the battle is on with the League's goal to stop Pariah from using the machine, which must be very complicated since they spent a lot of time in that fight. It must not just be a lever you throw or something. For the multiverse! The team notices the baddies seem to be using brute force only. They are under control of the great darkness and not thinking. Despite all this, it's a stalemate. Jon Stewart calls for backup, and green versions of every JLA are pop in. The Spectre, now the Spirit of Darkness, wipes out the constructs. Ollie tells Dinah to cover him. What are you doing? What I always do, saving the darn day, as he shoots an arrow at the machine, blowing it up. The Dark Army weakens, the Wraiths retreat, the good guys win, right? Ollie says, aren't you all glad I came? Now let's shut this down and go home. I'll make chili. Doomsday crushes Ollie in response, who dies in Dinah's arms. Oliver Queen, Green Arrow, 1941 to 2022, rest in peace. The Trinity attack Pariah, who replies, You've only delayed the inevitable, and sends out a shockwave, disintegrating all three of them. Kal-El, a.k.a. Clark Kent, Superman, 1938 to 2022. Bruce Wayne, Batman, 1939 to 2022. Diana, Princess of Themyscira, Wonder Woman, 1941 to 2022. Rest in peace. The shockwave continues, destroying the rest of the heroes in a single panel? John Stewart, Green Lantern, 1972 to 2022. Satana Satara, 1964 to 2022. Arthur Curry, Aquaman, 1941 to 2022. Kendra Saunders, Hawk Girl, 1999 to 2022, and John Johns, Martian Manhunter, 1955 to 2022. Rest in peace. Only Black Adam survives, seeing the JLI also incinerated. He grapples with Pariah and brings them down with lightning. Shazam! Which knocks them both out. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice, the heroes that saw others warped away are checking in. No one is answering their comms. Superboy, John, arrives. What about my dad? There's an explosion and they find Black Adam in a crater. The Justice League are dead. To be continued in Dark Crisis from the Refrigerator Magnet event titled Generator. DC's been building to this, so it's no surprise. Which makes their deaths, which we also know will be temporary, so insignificant. Killing five of them in a single panel, the Trinity get a double splash page, is an indignity. Sorry, DC, you did not convince me to buy the 47 comics that will comprise your next event. Just let me know when the real League is back. Now, one of the reasons, or excuses, DC's decided to kill off the Justice League is that 2022 is the 30th anniversary of a watershed event in the history of the DCU, the death of Superman. The event began in December 1992, although the actual death wasn't until a month later in Superman 75, which is another tie-in to Justice League 75. It came about due to another storyline that got held up due to synergy, the wedding of Clark Kent and Lois Lane. It was built up over a long period of time. Let's face it, the will-they-won't-they started in 1938. Then, the producers of the Lois and Clark TV series decided they would have a wedding. And, of course, it made sense for both events to happen at the same time. 
the comic was asked to put the wedding on hold. But now how to fill up that massive hole in the overall storyline? Writer Jerry Ordway, in the middle of a confab about all this, made a joke. Let's just kill him. By the way, the TV show ended up delaying the wedding for a few years. For those who weren't around then, it's difficult to describe how major a cultural event the death of Superman became. DC had already killed Supergirl and the Barry Allen Flash in Crisis of Infinite Earths. But Supergirl, in a different form, had already returned by 1993. It would take until 2008 for Barry to be resurrected. However, Superman was the premier DC character, the reason we call them superheroes. The comic book industry of 1993 was all about speculation. Gimmick covers, new number one issues, included swag, whatever it took to get a potential buyer's attention. There were two classes of buyers, those who actually read comics and those who purchased comics and immediately squirreled them away, never reading them. The death of Superman was the pinnacle, or nadir, depending on your view, of the gimmick, with a multiple-issue lead-in called Doomsday. For those who don't know, an alien named Doomsday killed the Man of Steel. Spoiler! This was followed by two arcs, Funeral for a Friend and Reign of the Supermen. Superman 75, where his death actually occurred, sold over 6 million copies, composed of the newsstand version, which used to be a thing, a direct version sold at your local comic book store, and a collector's version. This was sold in a sealed black bag with a bloodied S symbol. Assuming you broke the seal on the bag, you would find a black armband, a special edition of the Daily Planet, a.k.a. a poster, a trading card, and stickers. DC sent a package to the press as well, a cardboard coffin, stickers, and a poster. Now, your regular comic reader had zero doubt that Superman would return at some point. Again, superhero resurrections were and are a dime a dozen. But the general public didn't understand this. They were convinced that DC was closing the door on a billion-dollar franchise. The media treated this very seriously, with editorials about how the world would cope without the Metropolis Marvel. In fact, it was treated like a real news story as opposed to the publicity stunt it really was. Publications ran the story immediately before DC was even ready with their PR. SNL ran a sketch with Superman's funeral, probably the best superhero-themed sketch they've ever done, with characters from both DC and Marvel paying their respects. Partly because of the early attention, local comic book shops were besieged with customers, many of whom had never purchased a comic before. They believed that, like these stories of action number one selling for a fortune, they would be able to sell this comic later and pay for their kids' college education. Any collector will tell you that value is based mostly on scarcity, and with six million copies out there, I heard stories of people going to comic book conventions that weekend and paying $75 for a copy when you could still get it at cover price at your local comic book shop. Now, I purchased a few copies myself, again, cover price, so I could crack open a collector's copy. And actually, yours weren't even at cover price because back then you were getting a discount off cover price for buying pulls. Exactly. Now, once speculators realized they had been suckered, they abandoned the comic book market, which caused a collapse in the industry, which you could argue they've never fully recovered from. So how did DC bring back the action ace? With four possible choices who took over the Superman titles. Steel, a.k.a. John Henry Irons, a construction worker saved by Superman who built special armor with a hammer that allowed him to fly. Steel got a long-running title and a terrible movie, 
The cyborg Superman, a former astronaut saved by Superman from a solar flare, but holds a grudge against him after he's dropped into a half-robot body. He continues to recur as a supervillain. Then we have Superboy, a teenage clone of Superman and Lex Luthor, who can mimic some of Superman's powers with telekinesis. He got a long-running title and continues in the Titans and Young Justice titles with a callback recently on CW's Superman and Lois. And finally, Eradicator, an energy-powered alien who considers himself the last son of Krypton and prioritizes justice over saving civilians, another recurring supervillain. Their stories go on for a few months, and then Superman, in a black costume, returns, getting powers back via Jonathan Kent retrieving Clark's soul while the former was in a coma, a regeneration matrix, and a sacrifice by the Eradicator. This was all intended to be a combo that could never be repeated. This is also when Clark adopted a mullet. If some of this sounds like the plot of the recent Superman DCEU films, there's a good reason. So what did DC take from this event? That death sells. Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and Green Arrow would later expire for short periods of time. Announcer Bot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at facebook.com slash sfppn. Follow us on Twitter at sfppn. Check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.